Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel according to Mark. I'm sorry, no it doesn't. It comes according to the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew's fourth chapter from verses 12 to 23. I invite you to follow along on page 3 of the New Testament section of your Pew Bible. Again, that's Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. And then as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading this morning is taken from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 18. I invite you to follow along with the Bible that you have. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of his power. For the message about the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Comedian Emo Phillips used to tell this story. In conversation with a person I had recently met, I asked, are you Protestant or Catholic? My new friend replied, Protestant. I said, me too, what denomination? He answered, Baptist. Me too, I said, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist, he replied, me too, I shouted. And we continued to go back and forth, and finally I asked, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 1879, or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He replied, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic. The popular Presbyterian writer and pastor, Friedrich Buechner, once wrote about denominations this way. They are Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians. They are Presbyterians, Lutherans, Congregationalists. They are Disciples of Christ. They are Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses. They are Moravians. They are Quakers. And that's only for starters. New denominations spring up. Old denominations split up and form new branches. When Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body which is broken for you, it's hard to believe that even in his wildest dreams, he foresaw the traffic and ludicrous brokenness of the church as his body. So true. Indeed, division or disunity is a problem in today's churches. When the cult of personality doesn't just dominate the world of sports and entertainment, but also our churches. Many people attend or leave a church precisely because of the personality and gifts of the pastor. I can certainly understand that it is only human nature that we tend to seek our leader who sees things as we see them. But when the leader sees things differently, well, it's time to move on. It's time to find another church. Come to think of it, isn't it how it works in all other areas of life as well? When we don't get what we want, we change the channel, we buy a new toy, we may even get a new job. The bottom line is, we get what pleases us. The Apostle Paul, however, has a very, very different vision of the Christian community that would look beyond dominant personalities and what pleases us in particular. In fact, this way of seeing which involves commitment to a church even when its leaders change requires that we think of ourselves serving Christ community and not Christ community serving us. Now, in order for us to understand better what Paul is trying to say to us, we really need to know the context in which he wrote. You see, Paul founded the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey around AD 50. He then moved on after spending two years there. And sometime after that, he wrote the Corinthians a letter that was lost. 
And they in turn wrote a letter to Paul asking him many questions. And you can see some of those answers that Paul is trying to point out to them. For example, in chapter 7, 8, 12, and 16, that is, whenever Paul mentions now concerning this, he is in reality answering the question. And it was after receiving this letter and news from Chloe's people, as mentioned in verse 1 here, that Paul sent what we've come to know and love as 1 Corinthians. Now, among the many problems that he will address in this letter, the first four chapters deal with problems of factionism or division. Even though the church appears to be united on the outside, it's inwardly divided. It seems some people were more impressed by the preachings and teachings of Apollos and Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, than they were with Paul's. So, what did they do? They aligned themselves with these two outstanding preachers of the day. It's obvious from the content and what Paul is trying to say here that the divisions in Corinth was not about doctrine, but more social in many aspects. Because Paul never attacked or criticized the teachings of either Apollos or Peter, he was more concerned with the spirit of division itself. In fact, Paul is not even concerned with diversity itself because he later expanded on this topic in chapter 12 when he calls the church the body of Christ. That we, as different members of the body of Christ, would have different parts to play in the functioning of the body. You see, Paul is a firm believer that people are different and have different gifts. And so he doesn't place for uniformity, but for unity in diversity. To Paul, unity is not about uniformity. To Paul, diversity is not about division. And so the bottom line question for Paul on this issue is quite clear, and that is to whom do you belong? Notice that some people are saying, I belong to Paul, not we belong to Paul, but I belong to Paul. First person, singular. I belong to Apollos, and I belong to Cephas, and even I belong to Christ. Now somebody may ask, what's wrong in saying I belong to Christ? The problem here, obvious, obviously, is that they were saying that with a sense of pride or even smugness, thinking that they were above everybody else as if they had a more superior spirituality, if you will. A type of feeling that by just saying, I belong to Christ, they are better than all others. And some may even go as far as saying, because of it, I am above the understanding of the resurrection of the body that I shall never die and I will inherit God's kingdom on this earth because I belong to Christ. And so by saying, I belong to Christ, they're in fact trying to express their own pride and arrogance to other Christian brothers and sisters. Paul then goes on to ask in verse 13 here, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Obviously, the answer to these questions is a big no, of course not. 
You see, what Paul is trying to help us see here is that we have to be united together in order to fulfill the purpose of Christ's work on earth. His strategy is to try to highlight the unity that has not yet been destroyed by the evolving diversity. And he finds it in the cross of Christ, who has not been divided into pieces. And he even goes so far as to put himself down in saying his preaching is not with eloquent wisdom. You see, Paul wants the Corinthians to see beyond himself and others to the God who sent Apollos and Peter and himself and see the wisdom in everyone coming together, quote, united in the same mind and the same purpose, unquote. Yes, it's true that sometimes we Christians are tempted to think that the highest calling and highest wisdom is to define the finer points of faith against all possible errors. In fact, it is very much in our human nature to do just that. And that reminded me of a story which I believe the English teachers among us would appreciate. An English professor once said to his class, we all know when you put two negatives together, you get a positive. It's called a double negative. But it has never been proven in any form that when you put two positives together, you could form a negative. Immediately, there was a voice in the back of the class who said, yeah, right. Got it? You see, we all have a tendency to think that we are orthodox. We all think we have the right doctrine and all the rest are heretics. I'm sure it must have been tempting for Paul to rally his followers against those of Apollos and Peter with whom he did have some legitimate differences. But instead, he urged them at Corinth to live in peace, to agree with one another. This unity is not something that comes easily or naturally. It's something that has to be deliberately worked on by everyone involved. Now I'd like to offer an illustration to make my point in the context of music, jazz music that is. You see, improvisation is an act of spontaneous composition and performance. And it lies at the very heart of great American jazz. You can hear it in jazz clubs all across the country, but if you want the really good stuff, you really need to go to the Village Vanguard in New York City. Now, the Vanguard doesn't serve food, and yet the club has survived in all its subterranean glory for 85 years and has featured the rousing riffs of some of the greatest jazz musicians in the world. Wander in on a weekday evening and who knows, you might even be treated to a trumpet solo by a superstar such as Wynton Marsalis. Well, that's exactly what happened to David Hatchdu, a writer who stumbled into the Vanguard one Tuesday night and had an amazing experience. In case you didn't know, Wynton Marsalis is one of the truly exalted rulers of the jazz universe. 
but was part of a small combo offering up a series of bebop classics that evening. The set started off in an unremarkable way, but then Masala stepped up to the microphone to offer a solo called I Don't Stand a, a Ghost of a Chance With You. It was a melancholy song. It was full of murmurs and sighs, and Masalas performed it with deep feeling and expression. At the climax of the song, he played the final phrase in such a way that the trumpet seemed to give actual voice to the heartfelt word, I don't stand a ghost of a chance. The audience sat in awe listening in silence. And then it happened. In the middle of that sacred silence, as the song's most dramatic point, someone's cell phone erupted in a chirping, sing-song electronic melody. In an instant, the spell was broken. People in the audience giggled nervously, turned to their drinks and resumed their table conversation. Masalas paused for a beat and stood motionless. His eyebrows arched. The embarrassed cell phone owner fled the scene. And the conversation in the club grew louder. The man could have stepped down at that moment and quit the gig altogether, disgusted. After all, he is a king of jazz and doesn't need to perform in little clubs with rude cell phone users. But Marsalis didn't move. Instead, he put his lips to his trumpet and replayed that stupid cell phone melody note for note. <laughs> and then he played it again and began improvising variations on that theme, on that tune. The members of the audience stopped chatting and slowly began to listen up. He changed keys once or twice and then seamlessly eased back into a ballad temple and in just a few minutes finishing his improvisation and he was exactly where he had left off. I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. The ovation reports David Hodge was tremendous. You see, Wynton Marsalis transformed a rude interruption into a moment of glory. He didn't allow an unexpected shock to stun him or stop him or silence him, but instead he twisted this setback into a comeback. And so there's a message in this for all of us, especially, especially as it reminds us that God does the same thing for us every single day. You may even say God is the master of divine improv. And in the same way, Paul is trying to help us change the way we think and bring us back onto the right track to be master improvs, to help us see that to argue the fine points in what we believe could become a distraction which causes disunity. But to talk about in whom we believe, we then have unity. As he points us to the cross of Christ here in verse 18, quote, 
foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, unquote. Will Willimon, the popular retired United Methodist bishop and preacher, once said, if we or the world could be saved through human kindness or clear thinking, Jesus either would have formed a sensitivity group and urged us to share our feelings or would have founded a school and asked us to have discussions. But knowing the ways of God, the way of the world, and the persistence of human sin, he took up the cross, called disciples, gathered the church, and bade us follow him down a different path of freedom. And that is exactly what Jesus did when he called his first disciples. In the Matthew account earlier, we heard how Peter, Andrew, James, and John were called, how they left their livelihood and their families to follow Jesus. But then we need to ask the next question, to do what? To do what? What did they leave to do? Jesus says, come and I will show you how to fish for people. Now, while it's true that Paul says here in verse 10 for us to be united in the same mind and the same purpose, we still need to ask the question, what is the purpose of this unity? Are we just united for its own sake? I believe the Matthew account today also gives us some insight for the purpose of that unity, and that is to do the work that Christ has come to do that we are partners with Christ in ministry. Well, I'm pretty sure Jesus could have done all the work by himself if he wanted to, but didn't. Instead, he called mere mortals, like James, John, Peter, Andrew, people like you and me, to be his partners in ministry. Because it is only by doing so that we are going to be able to fish for people. And so the question for us today is no longer whether we belong to Paul or to Apollos or to Peter or even to Christ, or that we are Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, and so forth, in a proud and boastful way. But what are we called to do? Why do we follow Jesus at all, for that matter? Notice what Jesus is doing here. Right after calling his first disciples, verse 23 says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. I'm sure these four who were with him the whole time and all this was done before Jesus even preached the Sermon on the Mount. They were observing. They were learning. They were being partners with Jesus. Friends, yes, you and I are called to be united in order to do the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. That's what we are united to do. I mentioned Frederick Beekner's quote earlier about denominations, and he actually has something positive to say about denominations. 
He says, there's no reason why everyone should be Christian in the same way and every reason to leave room for differences. But if all the competing factions of Christendom were to give as much of themselves to the high calling and holy hope that unites them as they do now to the relative inconsequentialities that divide them, the church will look more like the kingdom of God for a change and less like an ungodly mess. We don't want to be an ungodly mess, do we? And one of the great hymns of the church, we'll, which we'll sing as our closing hymn today, is The Church is One Foundation, in which it tells us why it's so important for the church to have unity. It's because the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. You see, after all, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about Christ. Amen.